You don't need special gadgets to be a hero. With unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere, the Capital One Quicksilver card makes you the hero of every purchase. Whether it's headphones, a lounge chair, or even a well-deserved massage, whatever the Quicksilver purchase, you're the hero. No fighting bad guys, getting in epic car chases, or parachuting out of buildings required. Simple, isn't it? The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. You and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. And um, there's Jerry. And this is Disgust on Stuff You Should Know <laughs> about Disgust. You got to say it like that. I'm excited about this one, Chuck. And you oh, want to yeah? know why? I have no idea. <clears throat> I think you do. If you stopped and really thought about it, that's fine. That's fine. But if you stopped and thought about it, you would say, yes, I know exactly why, Josh. And it is as follows. Colon quotes, uh, because this is one of those things that science hasn't fully explained, which means there's a lot of interesting theories, which means we just get to like talk smack the whole time. <laughs> it's interesting. This is one of those where I was reading it and I was, I mean, it was sort of interesting, but then I was like, why would anyone even study this? Uh, I, I, that's, I mean, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think one of the reasons that I'm fascinated by it and that I'm sure one of the reasons these, I mean, to, to dedicate your career to studying disgust, it is kind of a bizarre idea. But one of the main researchers in the study of disgust is a guy named Paul Rosen. He's kind of like the godfather, maybe even the father of the field. Yeah. It's he like says poor people in that family. Sure, but he's been doing it longer than anybody. So he's the he's the pappy, um, as they say in the hills. Uh, he said that to him, disgust is the thing, the emotion, the experience that makes humans human. That that it is disgust that separates us from the other animals that we share the animal kingdom with. So much so that we actually may use disgust to separate ourselves from the rest of the animals. Okay. That is pretty fascinating, and it's worth exploring, too, because I think it says a lot about us as as humans and as animals. Yeah. So that's why. That's the answer to your question. How about that? All right. No, I, I get why somebody would want to study I guess I'm talking about allocating funds to study it. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> it just seems like a strange thing to sink money into. Well, I mean, if the humanities are going to sink money into anything, what makes us the most human would be, it makes, it makes sense. According to one guy. <laughs> right. I love it. Let's talk about gross things. Okay. So, we're going to. So, so this, this whole idea of studying it, of studying disgust is actually pretty new. Um, Rosen didn't really start until like the 70s. And it wasn't until the 90s that it really got, it really picked up. Um, which we'll kind of get into. But prior to that, it was basically just philosophers who who were talking about disgust, right? 
Yes, I think, uh, and I'm not sure about studying, but at least as far as uh, I think, it seems to me like it was more of a like, where's the boundary? Mm-hmm. As far as what can we write about and what can we talk about and what can we perform right. and still sell books and tickets. Right. Like we want we want people to to be tantalized at the thought of being grossed out or disgusted, but not actually be disgusted. No. It is a fine line that's walked, you know? No, of course. And it's subjective. It is, but the other thing about disgust that's pretty interesting is it also appears to be universal. It's like it's a universal reaction, but what disgusts people is not universal. It's culturally bound, I guess, right? And maybe personal, too. Sure. I think totally personal. So the the over time, like as, you know, disgust kind of moved out of the realm of philosophers and into science, um, there were a couple people who kind of made contributions early on in the field. One was Charles Darwin. He uh, wrote a treatise on it, and his big thing was that disgust was um, related to taste, which is true to an extent, but that was Darwin's big thing. And then later on, there was a guy, a psychoanalyst named Andrus Angyal, and Andrus Angyal basically said that, um, no, 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 disgust is not really related to taste. It's the It comes from the idea or the thought of putting something horrific into the mouth. Which, again, kind of makes sense to a certain extent. But then when Rosen and friends came along, it really started to take off. And they actually managed to kind of categorize disgust into a few categories, which is what you do when you categorize things. Yeah, there's uh, the first one is core disgust. And that's what you think of if you, like, you know, if poop or, I mean, everyone has their own triggers. Mm-hmm. But if, like, vomit or feces or, like, a, like entrails or something like that's core disgust that's an encounter with some sort of like physical contaminant that makes you you know make that face right and that face specifically that's another universal thing too apparently the face is it's called the gape which is your mouth is open your tongue may or may not be sticking out your nose is wrinkled and your upper lip is is raised interesting i don't do that with my mouth open though so you just kind of do the the nose wrinkle in the upper lip? I guess. Like this? But uh, I don't open my mouth. Right. So that's why I sort of like, I don't know, when it comes to stuff like this, I'm a little, when they make these sweeping statements like, everyone makes this face. It's like, right. Well, everyone may make a variation of a face. Of a, know? like, kind of a, there's like a universal set of of characteristics to the face that you could choose from that would fall into disgust like that? Well, I don't know if you choose anything, but maybe your natural reaction. But like, I don't open my mouth. And when I read that, like, everyone opens their mouth. I'm like, no, that's not true. So um, I think one of the reasons why there is like this idea of it being universal is because evolutionary psychology, as we'll see, has said like, yes, this is our realm. We've got this. We're going to explain this one. And to fully explain it, it basically has to be universal. So I think that's another thing about the point where the study of disgust is right now. Like there's a lot of good ideas, some of which have kind of been shown to be probably true thanks to the wonder machine. But it's still, it's not fully explained. And so there are some ideas and descriptions that make it seem kind of wacky too, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, That second kind of disgust, getting back to that, was uh, animal nature disgust, which is apparently these are things that, anything that reminds us that we're really animals. And that, that could, there could be a wide range of things there from 
Like some people think people eating with their hands is disgusting. Mm -hmm. And I think that would qualify under animal nature because like you're eating like an animal, let's say. Um, Sex, uh, and we'll get into that more later, but apparently there's a baseline disgust for sex, which uh, I'm not so sure about that one either. Uh, And then hygiene uh, is another one. Poor hygiene is the animal nature disgust. Yeah, and another one is the like like you said entrails, something that's called the um, the uh, body envelope, the ideal body envelope being violated. Whether it's like there's a deformity or there is like some sort of um, like a, a open wound or something like that, they think that this whole animal nature thing, that all these things remind us that we are animals and that disgust can be triggered by um, that reminder that we That's are right. that we are in fact animals, which is kind of weird, but we'll get into explanations for that later. I can't <laughs> wait. That's right. And the final one is moral disgust, which, uh, and this is one where, you know, you, you can be disgusted with someone's behavior or, uh, you know, disgusted with, like something a politician does or disgusted with racism mm-hmm. uh, or bigotry, something like that. Right. And that one makes like the least amount of sense if you think about it. Like, the, okay, the first two were just kind of like, all right, we're like it's animal related. We might have issues with being animals. So we're we're kind of disgusted by ourselves at the thought that we're animals. Maybe it's a bit more of a stretch than that core disgust. Like core disgust makes the most sense out of all of them. Agreed? Uh. Yeah, and like, I don't even think that the moral disgust, I think that's a different type of thing altogether. So that, that other people have proposed that, that like they're, like some people have said, well, English speakers are just misusing the word disgust. They're that's actually what I talking. Think. Right. Well, they've done, they've done studies of people in the Wonder Machine that shows that the, the region of the brain, the anterior insula that's usually, um, that usually lights up when you're shown a picture of like dog poop and said, you're going to eat this, you know, your, your anterior insula lights up. That same region lights up when people are disgusted with um, other people morally. Yeah. Like, re- remember the ultimatum game? I, I don't remember. It used to come up all the time back in the day in our episodes. Oh, yeah. But so if somebody was given a really, really low offer, a take it or leave it offer that was so low and so unfair that the person said, I'm just leaving it. I actually don't want this free money because I find it insulting. That same part of the brain that that is triggered by um, like fecal disgust is also triggered, um, which supports the idea that there actually is a moral dimension to disgust and that we experience it in the same way. Yeah. That's interesting. I, it is interesting, but it is like the it's the most tenuous of those three, I think. So the way this all started out, there there are a bunch of theories, but uh, it, it makes sense that it might have uh, been sort of an offshoot of distaste, which is you know it, your body is conditioned thanks to you know evolution to if you eat something that's bitter or rotten, like your instinct, your taste instinct is to throw it out. And get rid of it, uh, and it's a defense mechanism to save your life. And mm-hmm. so the idea is that disgust developed out of that, and that it's just sim- simply an evolutionary trait uh, that could have, you know, saved Tuk Tuk's life, you know, however many years ago. 
Yeah, and the, there's there's evidence apparently that this this distaste, which is basically is in an involuntary uh, reaction, is like dropping something that's hot. Like you don't stop and think, like, wow, this cooking pan is about five. Well, hold on, five hundred and fifty degrees Fahrenheit, and then you drop it. I should probably drop it. Like you just drop the pan. Distaste is the same exact thing, and they've actually seen it elsewhere in the animal kingdom. Um, so we've probably experienced distaste since before we were humans, and it's just spitting something out that doesn't seem right in a in a, a, a um, an effort to uh, I guess keep the body from becoming polluted with disease right and they think that distaste somehow became a behavior that was laid over this ex- or I'm sorry disgust has was a, a behavior that became laid over this existing structure of distaste yeah and that's interesting to me because that means that it it becomes all of a sudden it's not like you have to eat poop to be disgusted right like the mere sight of poop now can disgust somebody yes uh and that just happened over time i think so that is why rosen says this is like disgust is the defining characteristic of humanity because they suspect that other animals at the very least almost all other animals don't have the cognitive capacity to use their imagination to imagine themselves eating poop and see in and being disgusted by it as a result right so that's why they say disgust separates humans from from animals because it requires imagination to go from an involuntary reaction of spitting out food to not even getting to the point where the food is in your mouth you can imagine that you would have that reaction and experience the emotion of disgust so you don't have to go through that process, that actually very dangerous process of eating something rotten to figure out that you shouldn't be eating it. You can imagine it beforehand, and that's the function that disgust, at least core disgust, provides humanity. It advances us. We don't have to learn through trial and error over and over again not to eat rotting meat. We just know on some very basic level that that is a disgusting thing to do, and we have a reaction to it. All right, you want to take a break? Yep. All right, everyone. We're going to be right back right after this with more Disgust. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 
So I, I think we should go back to Tuk Tuk um, okay. and just like how this actually may have worked back in the day. Uh, let's say Tuk Tuk and his buddy Mock Mock are wow. strolling along the tundra. You know, Chuck, after 11 years, I am surprised that we have a new character, and I am very pleased. <laughs> Mock Mock? Yeah. Well, don't get used to him because uh, Mock Mock is he's about to die. <laughs> uh, poor Mock Mock. So Tuk Tuk and Mock Mock are walking along the tundra. Um, they find a, a an old dead antelope, and Mock Mock is like, well, this doesn't smell great, but I tell you what, I'm going to eat this thing because I don't have this genetic trait because my mom ate this stuff, uh, and it's fine. And Tuk Tuk's like, I don't know, my friend. It looks and smells gross. Um, I do have this genetic trait, so I'm going to pass on that. So Mock Mock's like, you're a sucker. I'm going to chow down on this rotten antelope. Right. And then Mock Mock gets sick and dies before Mock Mock can have any babies. And yep. then if this happens thousands and tens of thousands of times over a huge population, you can see how over time it would be like any uh, physical evolutionary trait uh, that might evolve over time. And all of a sudden, Tuk Tuk's family is thriving uh, today in the United States, all healthy descendants of Tuk Tuk, and Mok Mok is long gone. Right. And, and um, because Tuk Tuk was able to pass along his genes of being disgusted by rotten meat, and Mok Mok died before he could pass his genes of not being disgusted along. So nature's or natural selection or evolution selected for for Tuk Tuk's, right? Right. And Tuk Tuk was a prolific lover, as we all know. And I, I imagine Mok Mok in his dying words gasping, I regret never having seen the ocean. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good mock mock. Everyone doesn't know, but it's true. That was it a is. great mock mock impression. Like so, Chuck, um, that's the that's the evolutionary psychology basis for explaining how disgust came along and was passed along, right? And it makes sense on a very basic level, but it starts to get less and less sensible, as you've already pointed out, as we start to add more and more inputs of disgust, right? Like, yes, it makes sense that either. Uh, somehow the idea of not eating meat was passed along either genetically or even you could say Tuk Tuk went back to the hunter-gatherer tribe and said, hey, let me tell you what happened to Mok Mok. It was crazy. He ate some rancid antelope, which I guess we all kind of thought was okay up to this point. But let me tell you, steer clear of the rancid antelope. You don't want to have anything to do with that because it just killed Mok Mok. And everyone trusting Tuk Tuk and not just assuming that he hit Mok Mok with a rock or something out in the wilderness and left him to die, that he actually did die from eating antelope. This became passed along. This is another way it could have happened. And that this like ancient knowledge, we just lost um, where the ancient knowledge came from that was actually Tuk Tuk seeing Mok Mok die. And instead, it just became something that um, we came to think of as like instinct over time. You just don't eat rancid meat. But really what it is, rather than being passed along genetically, it was a, um, I guess, a, a meme, uh, an idea that was passed along generation to generation. And it became so ingrained that we just confuse it for genes or instinct as well, which is another explanation of it. But both of them have like an evolutionary component to it for sure. Yeah, and then over time, that even changes to where um, like it's not like humans – like let's talk about a human body then, like okay. a dead a dead human body, a corpse. Let me get my poking stick. <laughs> 
Well, you probably wouldn't poke it because your evolutionary instinct is to probably just stay away from that body. Well, that's what the stick is for. And it's not just because, like, well, it may be partially because a dead body just might creep someone out. But there's also an evolutionary basis to avoid that body, Mm -hmm. uh, get it out of the house, uh, and bury it because it may have been diseased. Uh, And they've even done studies. There was a study in 2004 in biology letters, Mm -hmm. which is the, the greatest teen science mag out there. <laughs> <laughs> Tiger beat in biological sciences. Uh, so biology letters said that they did a study where they found the images of objects that held what was called a potential disease threat were rated as more disgusting. So this is just the idea that, um, again, because of evolution, we are uh, have trained ourselves to avoid somebody who looks sick. Okay. Now, we get to another big chink in the armor, if you ask me. Where did we get the idea that a body caused disease and that you could become polluted by some weird magical transference of this disease by handling or coming in close contact with the body? Like pre-germ theory? Pre-germ theory. Germ theory is very new. It's about 150 years old, almost on the nose. We're talking about people's aversion to dead bodies and corpses for eons before that. Th- hundreds of years, if not thousands and thousands of years, right? Well, maybe what, even more. Like, what if, like, I, I mean, what if someone just going, mm-hmm. like, back in the day were people like, oh, that's great. Come here and give me, a, give me some sugar. Right. Or were people always sort of repulsed by that? Yeah, I, I don't know. And we, we don't we don't know. We can't say we can only go as far back as any, like, historical references we can find. But you can make a pretty good case that an aversion to, to th- something like that or a, a dead body goes back much further than germ theory. Yeah, it's weird. So you, you come to that question. Where did we get this idea? Where did we get this understanding on a very basic, fundamental level that— corpses are to be avoided so much so that we are disgusted by them. And even if you're not disgusted, like, I want to wretch if I see a dead body in person, which yeah. you may be surprised. I think a lot of people would be very surprised that if they actually did see a dead body, they would be, they they would probably wretch. It um, depends on, you know, what's going on. The state it's in, yeah, if it's eviscerated or something like that. Or the smell, I think, also, sure. too. Um, but the, the, the idea that, that there's something that is keeping you from avoiding it, whether it's the creeps, whether it's disgust, whether it's some form of aversion that is that is acting to put distance between you and the polluting entity, this dead body, um, where did that come from before germ theory? That's my big question that, yeah. that I, I haven't seen answered anywhere. It's where did we get that? Again, was it somebody handled the dead body and, like, became directly sick from it so obviously that even, like, Tuk Tuk could say, yes, the dead body caused this, so we should steer clear of hanging out around dead bodies? Or um, was there some sort of awareness on on a very basic level that, that we haven't figured out how to explain yet that it that kept generations and generations of humans relatively healthy before the advent of germ theory and our understanding of it. It is a bit of a mind experiment. It is. Like uh, <clears throat> the, the perhaps the very sound of someone very ill and hawking up, you know, phlegm sounds gross. Right. But like like you say, though, before germ theory, before they knew that that would make – that was sickness mm-hmm. or that made someone sick, maybe people were like – 
oh, come in here and do that in my face. I, I love that sound. <laughs> right. But it just doesn't seem likely. It's like ASMR to me. I don't know, man. It's very hard to wrap your head around. And also, if you remember in our Great Stink episode, prior, right prior to germ theory, there was miasma theory, which was the smell of something directly polluted you and made you sick. Well, it wasn't okay, like well, maybe that, associated you know. with it. But even that, it's like, so, okay, what, what made you think that the smell, what makes you think that a dead body, which in and of itself isn't giving off any actual signals, that it will make you sick if, if it's decayed enough and you, like, interact with it? What about that made us associate sickness, a transference of sickness. That transference is it's an invisible, magical transference of pollution from the dead body to you, the person who's handling the dead body. That is that is significant and remarkable that we came up with that. That's what I think is is just so fascinating about all this. Yeah, and I think this thing about the contingencies plays in too, because, uh, and it's funny, I have to admit, when I read this, the word contingencies in my head I, I was adding a letter or something, and I kept saying it in my head as <laughs> contingenesis. <laughs> and I was like, what is that contingenesis? And finally, I saw contingencies correctly. I was like, man, am I drunk? Like, what's going on? So anyway, there are contingenesis. <laughs> That's like uh, facetious. I had that same uh, experience oh, really? with facetious. When I was, yeah. What did you think it said or sounded like? Facetious or something like that. Oh, and I kept fastidious? sounding it out, and then finally <laughs> I was like, oh, that's facetious. Yeah, but you were probably like 12 <laughs> I was. And, and not a professional broadcaster. <laughs> yeah. I just think Aye. you had something in your eye. That was all. So these contingencies um, <laughs> in humans, at any time, there there are many contingencies at work within <laughs> us competing against each other. Right. So if you go back to Tuk Tuk and Mok Mok, um, Mok Mok uh, died. Poor but Mok let's Mok. say he did feel some disgust, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like, but he st- was also hungry. So that's the competing contingenesis. <laughs> <laughs> and his desire to eat, or, or not desire, his need to eat, right. overcame his low-level disgust of like, well, it's not, doesn't taste great. But I, I have this other contingency that says I have to eat, so I'm going to eat this thing. And he doesn't die. Right. Then it's so, a little more complicated. It is more complicated. And if you step back and think about it evolutionarily, it would make way more sense for us to not maintain a sense of disgust and be able to eat like rancid meat Ugh. and then instead learn, like like basically develop a gut bi- biome that will will kill any any bacteria or decay that could make us sick so that we we could have like that many more things that are available for us to eat when we're hard up that makes way more sense through natural selection and evolution than learning to not eat something you and know i, what I mean? think that's sort of the thing too though like the the winning contingency is the ultimately going to be the one that it makes you more fit for you know replication right Right, so or you would sure. for you, <laughs> yeah, for cloning, <laughs> self self cloning. So the the but yes, yeah, so if you have more available food that you can gain energy from in the environment, that would make more sense to adapt to that rather than to adapt an aversion to right. a potential food source. Right, so that's one question, and then you can also kind of um, lay that right over sex as well too. Right, so this this explanation of 
why we might be averse, why we have competing contingencies for sex, right? Like you want to be attracted to your mate because you're a, a person you you find attractive is probably going to be um, a good match for you reproductive-wise. Right. And and especially that, if they smell good. Right. And then, yes. And then if, if, you, if you are trying to reproduce with somebody you're disgusted by, they might not be a good match reproductive-wise. Evolutionarily, it makes sense. That's a that's a that's some mental gymnastics right there. To me, it makes more sense to just say, here's an example of evolution screwing us up, of natural selection screwing us up. We developed an ability to feel disgusted by sex because it reminds us that we're animals. And so we're missing out on sex or at least deriving pleasure from sex because we are possibly disgusted by the act of sex if we step back and think about it in the right way. Right. You see what I'm saying? Sure. So there's a lot of holes here, which is why, I mean, I've got both of my six shooters. I'm about to start shooting them in the air out of glee <laughs> because it's been a while since we had an episode like this. Yeah. Another thing that I found interesting, too, from this was the, uh, the just the, the mere reaction. Uh, apparently, most people open their mouths. I keep mine shut. But regardless, uh, we all have a disgust reaction. I guess if you don't, then you're probably a, a serial killer. Like if you saw someone, <laughs> yeah, like open up and smell like rotten meat, and literally yes. just kept a, this stone face, and we're like, mm-hmm. that smells really bad. <laughs> like they, they're clearly sociopaths, right? And that's what Rosen was saying. That's why disgust is the it's it's the defining human characteristic because that person would seem non-human right. in that sense. They'd be a robot, kind of. Yeah, but so if people make this face, like that is the cue. Like, you don't even need to smell the milk. If I walk in the kitchen mm-hmm. and Emily pours some milk and it, uh, well, I was going to say I see it clump out of the, the thing, <laughs> but that wouldn't count. Like, if I see Emily just smell the milk, she makes her disgust face. I, I don't need to smell it. No, but why is it that there is a 100% chance that Emily or anyone we'll else is smelling smell the, Yes, <laughs> who will say, ugh, smell this. Yeah, I never you're do. Like, no, that's okay. Thanks for the warning with the wrinkled nose and raised upper lip. I know, but when you're married, it's like, no, seriously, I smelled it. Like, you have to smell it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, no, I don't want to smell it. I've suffered. Um, so that becomes like all of a sudden a uh, something that like bonds communities together and cultures mm-hmm. together even. Mm-hmm. Right, but which which is another okay. So this then we get to the explanation uh, or the moral explanation of disgust of how seeing somebody involved in cheating or some sort right. of unfairness or racism or just something some really antisocial um, uh, violating behavior. Yeah, that you you experience disgust at the very least. People say use the word disgust. I'm disgusted and by make that. the I'm face. I mean, it. maybe it is the same thing. So that's that's. I mean, that's what that you know? one Wonder Machine study said. And the other the other way that they backed it up. There's a really interesting article by Rosen uh, Jonathan Height. Mm-hmm. who actually was a contributor in our Super Stuff Guide to Happiness, if you'll remember. And then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, a guy named, um, oh, Macaulay. What is Clark Macaulay? They're kind of like this big three triad in, in the study of disgust. They're known and, as the only three. <laughs> there's a couple others, but yeah, kind of. But they uh, the, in this paper, they basically say, okay, so you get the Wonder Machine evidence suggesting that our actual brain 
the part of our brain responsible for experiencing disgust is lighting up when somebody gives us an unfair offer of money. That's one thing. But also they go around the world and say that in Japan, in Spain, in Portugal, um, all over the world, whatever that society or, or language's culture's word is for disgust, they routinely use it to describe things like the experience of seeing somebody hold poop up to their mouth and yeah. the experience of being treated unfairly or seeing somebody racist. So it's not just people in English misusing an English word, disgust, which means actually bad taste in older Middle English. Um, it's, it is, there is some sort of moral component to disgust, it seems like. Well, even the word distasteful, like, is rooted in the word taste. Right. And that's this a similar thing too. Like behavior can be distasteful mm-hmm. and uh rotten antelope can be distasteful. Exactly. Yeah. Uh especially if he's a real jerk. <laughs> right. <laughs> um the other th- interesting thing about uh the work that Jonathan Haidt did was this uh tying it to political ideology uh ideo- ideology. Jeez, what is wrong with me today? Uh I thought that was super <laughs> interesting because they did research and they found that people who are more sensitive to disgust and tend to be more socially conservative. And that can be exploited. So right. when you go to a, a major news outlet that may be conservative, mm-hmm. that is why you are more likely to see photos of uh, unwashed or sick immigrants approaching the border mm-hmm. and not like pictures of like the handsomest, most fit immigrant approaching the border. Because that will, at least according to this study, they they have a higher, uh, powerful, more powerful emotion of disgust. Right. It's it's hijacking your ability to experience moral disgust, uh, because apparently it's really really easy to come up and poke to push a, per- a person's disgust buttons. And from from what the study says is that this happens a lot, way more than we're cognizant of. And that if we can make ourselves cognizant of it, we could actually defend against it a little more. Yeah, I mean, you're, they're not going to – Fox News isn't going to put uh, the guy oh, that oh, looks like – you said it. You said it. You <laughs> said the name. They're not going to put the guy that looks like Antonio Banderas in the immigrant caravan. Hello. As their front – you okay? <laughs> yeah. As their front page uh, lead photo, you know. It's going to be uh, the person that's on the, in the on the stretcher that's sick and dying – Right. And that's going to cause this reaction of disgust. Like, they look CGI, what's happening. They CGI flies, like, <laughs> flying around the person. Can't you see Antonio Banderas walking up in the video and going, this wall is too sexy. <laughs> um, and then the other uh, interesting thing about that, that whole study that he was doing, that Hate was doing, was they also found that people make harsher judgments when they are exposed to a disgusting stimulus. So... Uh, and it usually was a smell, like the smell of a, of a of a tootie booty, a shot duck. <laughs> um, and if you smell this uh, flatulence, <laughs> you would react more harshly toward like a photo of something, right? Now, that might disgust you just a little bit. I want to know the methodology of this study pretty badly. Like, did they? Was it just one of those things where they just kind of suddenly the the area between you and the researcher filled with the fart smell? Well, where do you get the fart smell? Is there a synthetic or? I think there is. You probably like at some 
novelty joke shop. They picked up like a spinning bow tie while they got the, right. the canned <laughs> fart too, right? They're like, thank you. Uh, here's your $10 and uh, have a good day. And they shake their hand. There's a right. buzzer. Right, exactly. So, um, but I mean, like, is this, so where they, they were talking about something like, you know, how, how what kind of a prison sentence would you, oh, excuse me. What kind of a prison sentence would you give to somebody? And like this, this fart smell just kind of comes up, but like they're just not talking about it. I would guess that's how you would have to do it, right? Dude, I had a stranger ask me the other night if I farted. Oh, yeah? Had you? No, I was at the Fleetwood Mac concert standing in the beer line, and this guy in front of me turned around (laughs) with his wife and fully just said, did you fart? And I went, nope. And I was like, I would tell you if I did. Did he look at his wife and go, did you fart? No, but then we got to talking, and I was like, guys, I hate to tell you. I said, I don't even smell anything, so I think you're looking in the wrong direction. And then he felt like... I was a little drunk, so I didn't care. I was playing along. But then he felt like really bad and was over apologetic. And I was like, dude, if you're going to ask someone if they farted, don't then turn around and be weirdly ashamed of that. Right, get all weepy. Just own it. So, um, yeah, does the guy not know the whole he who smelt it dealt it idiom? I don't know. Maybe it was the first date and that was the deal. Maybe he did. Yeah. He really played it off well, it sounds like. All right, should we take a break? I think we should. All right, I'm going to go fart in the hallway. We'll be right back. Thank you for that, Chuck. We'll be right back. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. All right, it's back. Chuck is back now. Uh, everything's fine in here. Mm-hmm. And um, we are still talking about disgust. Let me, let's, 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 um, Just kind of go over this real quick one more time, okay? (laughs) So we started out with this this mechanism of distaste Mm -hmm. um, where we like involuntarily spit something out that's gross that occurs elsewhere in the animal kingdom. And then over time, we figured out how to create a new um, adaptation, a new behavior that is overlaid over that same brain circuitry where we spit something out, and we call that disgust. 
And it, it was it originally started out as an aversion to things like poop and vomit and, and that kind of stuff. And then that evolved even further because at some point we said, we're better than animals, and I don't like to be reminded of an animal. And I guess that desire to not be reminded of an animal developed so much that it became overlaid over that disgust emotion that had been that had hijacked the distaste emotion and then at some point finally it reached moral um the moral structure and that hijacked the animal and the core and the distaste to where now just the idea of somebody behaving in a certain way can disgust us and the whole thing that really kind of changed and made it human was the the um, addition of um, imagination and symbolism to these ideas so that we didn't even have to taste or smell or see anything anymore. Just thinking about this kind of stuff could disgust us. And that's where we're at in disgust research. And that's where we're at in the podcast too, frankly. Wow. That's a nice recap. Thank you. All right. So uh, culturally, you know, it depends on where you are in the world and what you might be disgusted by. So while while it is universal, it's not like every single thing is universal. Um, people uh, eat things in some parts of the world that other parts of the world might think are disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, again, is a thing that basically says, uh, I'm, I'm a part of this family, I'm a part of this culture, I'm a part of this group. Um, the fact that, like, I'll eat eyeballs mm-hmm. right, out, right out of a fish. Mm-hmm. Right out of a fish's head, just scoop it out and eat it. Right. Um, I might think that's disgusting, but that's not like necessarily like taboos are not the same uh, in cultures all over the world. Yeah, whether it's food, apparently they think maybe even, you know, well, cannibalism, obviously. Some cultures don't view incest as um, as taboo as, as other cultures do. So some of the things that we would think would be universally disgusting aren't universally disgusting. And the whole idea of food, too, shows that you can um, learn to not find something disgusting or never find it disgusting at all because you were just raised in a culture that eats this food and values it. But to somebody else from outside of the culture, when they see that food, they are disgusted by it. So, yeah, there's a lot of lack of universality in disgust that we might assume would be there that actually isn't. Yeah, I mean, vegetarianism and veganism is a perfect example. Uh, Someone can eat meat uh, until until they're in their mid-20s and then all of a sudden— switch to veganism and a year later the mere sight of meat might disgust them mm-hmm. whereas the year before they were chowing down on it which i would guess that's just like you restructuring your brain circuitry basically right yeah i think so probably i mean that would make sense but so something that never disgusted you before can become genuinely disgusted or the other way around uh-huh i imagine well, yeah, I mean, you can learn to eat other cultures' foods that you were disgusted by previously. And you, I know you people can learn that were to vegan eat, that eat meat now. Right, right, yeah, yeah. You can also learn to eat broccoli over time. Broccoli's good. It's it's not, though. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Roast it in the oven, delish. Okay, I will give you that roasted broccoli's okay, but if it's steamed or just, like, floppy in any way, shape, or form, I've had bad experiences with it over t- over the years. It sounds like someone's overcooking your broccoli. Not anymore, but yes, I think um, mom be and floppy. dad used to, used to overcook it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I go for al dente when it comes to most vegetables. Yeah, but like, roasted roasted is good. Mushy is a, is a uh, food quality that kind of disgusts me. Mm-hmm. So, uh... Food preparation is important. Like, 
I know we're just kind of kidding about the broccoli, but like no. le- let's say um, a- an eggplant or a squash. Mm-hmm. If you cook that thing till it's really mushy, uh, it's it's really gross to me. But I will totally eat an eggplant if it's nice and firm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, texture's enormous with it. It also affects taste too, which doesn't make any sense except for like it's part of the experience of it, right? Yeah, but true disgust happens for me, I think. It's not just like, I don't, like pref- I don't prefer that. Like mushy food really, really grosses me out. Well, there's something that that um, that Ed actually hit upon early on in this is that like disgust is it goes around our conscious thought, right? Yeah. Like you're not like, hmm, this this broccoli is is not to my preference. It is way too floppy and mushy, and I'd be I prefer to not have it in my mouth anymore. So blah, and you spit it out, and it just falls back onto your plate. Instead, you put it in your mouth, especially if you're not expecting it to be mushy, and you start no, chewing it like worst. you expect expected to be good, your reaction without even thinking is going to be to spit it out probably. And you might you might not actually spit it out, but that will be your first reaction and you might have to stop yourself, like bring your napkin up to your mouth or whatever. And that's one of the things that like really kind of is a, a hallmark characteristic of disgust. When it is experienced, it goes around our intellect and our, our um, conscious thought. It's a, a, a basic reaction. Yeah, and it can also get out of hand as far as the... Uh, if the idea is that at its root we're trying to avoid disease and dying, mm-hmm. um, we've all heard of of cases, phobias really, that develop um, and pathologies out of fear of uh, germs or dirt or cleanliness. Um, anyone who's ever seen the great uh, movie Safe by Todd Haynes, um, that was a movie about that mm-hmm. where this woman sort of slowly unwinds and uh, eventually ends up in a in a like a a community where everyone is obsessed with this kind of compulsive cleanliness. Who's the woman? It's uh, Julianne Moore. I haven't seen that yet. Is yeah, it pretty good? It was It was great. I mean, it was. it's a long time ago. So it's like in the early 90s, I think. Okay. Like some of her earlier work. Right. But that's just an example of how, um, how that can happen and how it can get out of hand until mm-hmm. basically you have a compulsive disorder that may have started – out of a legit environmental like disgust reaction to disease, right? Yeah, that well, that's what they think is the basis of of possibly all of it that has to do with disgust or a, a like a drive to to feel clean or to get rid of germs or to be afraid of germs that kind of thing. That it's it's your um your the being indoctrinated into disgust went a little too far and your brain your brain's disgust reaction just became too powerful and now it has this kind of crippling effect on your life. Yeah, but it can also like it's oddly there are things that have nothing to do with disease and dying mm-hmm. that uh, have been kind of labeled as disgusting and Ed points out acne is one of them that might trigger a disgust reaction in some people. And it's really completely harmless. It is, but it it's playing upon in an inadvertent way our predisposition to be grossed out by things like, like a disease. Yeah, a sore, a pox, a pustule. It has nothing to do with that. It just kind of resembles it. In the exact same way, people find slugs and snails disgusting, uh, and they suggest that it's because they look like they're covered in mucus. Even though it's not actually mucus, it reminds us of mucus, so we're disgusted at the thought of touching one of those things. Same thing. They're not disease carriers, but they remind us of it. That's the key. Because disgust works hand in hand with human imagination. I got Emily one of those poppet pals. Have you seen those? 
No, what is it? You know how she's pretty obsessed with with zit popping, mm-hmm. and she doesn't watch. She's not one of those people who watches the stuff on YouTube. Yeah, but it's just like a personal thing. But they, I saw it on Shark Tank. There's this thing now. It looks it's about the size of a bar of soap. Okay, but it's made out of uh, silicon. It's kind of this squishy rubber rectangular bar. Yeah, and you squirt this like uh, I don't know what it's made of. It's it's almost like Crisco or something. Um, I think it's plant based, and you okay. fill it up with that, and the top of it is covered with all these little dimple holes. And you pop them, <laughs> and oh. it comes it comes snaking out just wow. like a, a, like the best pimple you've ever seen. That's amazing. So I kept like trying to imagine that like this was going on the person's face. Now no, I no, see. no. It's like just to basically like here, keep busy with this and leave my face alone. Yeah, you just like whatever you set it in your lap and just pop away. That's really awesome. Man. Yeah, it's, it's it was really satisfying for her too. I thought she might be like, nah, this is not the same, but she was obsessed with it for that's awesome. A couple of days. That's is there any great human thing that Shark Tank hasn't give given us? I don't know. I can't I can't think of one. <laughs> um Yumi has a thing for cauliflower ear and she'll sometimes watch videos of cauliflower ear being drained and it's like I, I can't hang, man. It'll Did she ever date faint. a wrestler? No. Not the, not that I know of, but uh, she missed her chance, I guess. <laughs> right. She better have missed her chance by uh, She comes in and she finds you like on the carpet rolling your ear on the floor. <laughs> right. Isn't that how wrestlers get it? I think they get it from like a trauma to the ear, like a punch to the ear, like a, a, a impact to the ear, and then like it it swells up, and then it turns into like scar tissue or like just pussy infected edema. Well, which is why they wear the ear covers. Yes. Well, that and to look cool. Those do look kind of cool somehow. Um. So it off it offsets the singlet. which is the least cool thing you can wear. (laughs) It's pretty uncool, I have to say. Sorry, wrestlers, but the entire rest of the world thinks that the singlets look (laughs) uncool. It's not just us. Oh, boy. So so let's talk about the um, disgust scale real quick. Do you have that? Yeah, you know, I didn't even look at this because I thought it might be fun if you just went through a few of those with me. Oh, okay. Well, this is a great idea, Chuck. Let's make it into a game. Still innovating after 11 years. I'm so proud of us. So John, uh, Paul Rosen and John Haidt and uh, a couple of other people came up with the, sorry, Clark McCauley. And Clark McCauley, I'm just going to say the third person. They came up with a disgust scale. Okay? Yes. So Chuck, between zero and four, zero being strongly disagree and four being strongly agree, meaning it's very untrue or very true about you. Okay. Please indicate how much you agree with each of the following statements or how true it is about you. Between zero and what? Three? Four. Okay, four. Zero strongly disagree. It's very untrue about you. Four is strongly agree. Very true about you. You might be willing, sorry, I might be willing to try eating monkey meat under some circumstances. Strongly disagree. Four. That's a zero. Okay, zero. Okay. It would bother me to be in a science class and to see a human hand preserved in a jar. Uh, obviously, that would not bother me because when I saw the human head <laughs> in, in a bucket, very famously, yeah. my reaction was, huh, there's a human head. <laughs> okay. Whereas the person with me was really disgusted. Right. Yeah. And I think understandably so. Um, I love that story. Okay. Here's <laughs> another one. I never let any part of my body touch the toilet seat in public restrooms. Agree or disagree, untrue or true? Uh, I'm just going to ditch the numbers because it's confusing me. Uh, okay. I don't, that doesn't really bother me that much. I know that probably really disgusts you. <laughs> uh, no. Well, yeah, I just have to go to another place. Oh, see, when, yeah. When I do that. I don't mind, man. I know that's gross probably, but whatever. 
Uh, okay, here's one more um, from this one. Then we're going to do another set. You ready? Okay. Um, I would rather eat a piece of fruit than a piece of paper. Well, yeah, I'd rather eat a piece of fruit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think that's just like a baseline one that they use. Yeah, okay. maybe so. So then between zero and four, rate these not disgusting at all or extremely disgusting. All right, or just can, say I one of those two, okay? You see maggots on a piece of meat in an outdoor garbage pail. Uh, very disgusting. You, I agree. Your friend's pet cat dies and you have to pick up the dead body with your bare hands. Um, not disgusted, just sad. Okay. I, I mean, I've done that with all of my animals that have passed. I took care of the bodies. Right. I think this leaves out that it was hit by a car and is now part of the road, basically. Oh. What? Yeah, that's medium disgusting and sad. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, it's sad. You're about to drink a glass of milk when you smell it as spoiled. And then in parentheses, weirdly enough, it says, because Emily just jammed it <laughs> under your nose and said, smell this. That's weird. Um, yeah, the smell of turned food it grosses me out a lot. Okay. Uh, while you're walking through a tunnel under a railroad track, you smell urine. Yeah, I've been to New York enough times. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> it still gets me, man. I think smelling urine is worse than smelling poop for some reason. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, two more. You see a man with his intestines exposed after an accident. Yeah, that's pretty high up there. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And then last, Chuck, you see someone put ketchup on vanilla ice cream and eat it. Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although Chuck, it's interesting, though, when I thought about the, the body's entrails, like, I don't love it, but I can watch, like, a surgery. Mm -hmm. It's not my favorite thing, but I'm not, like, fully disgusted. But if it's an accident, I think that, it, it, so it might be a contextual thing as well. So one of the things that I experience when I see like some something in surgery, and I think, yeah, context definitely has a lot to do with it in that case too. But if I see like a surgery, like remember there used to be that TV network that was nothing but surgery. You remember, <laughs> I remember it? remember that, uh-uh. It was in like the late 80s, early 90s, I think. Um, but uh, to see that, I'll get like faint, right? Like, oh, yeah. And it's not necessarily the sight of blood. It's like the sight of viscera. I, I get a little faint and it never made sense to me. That until might be mirror neurons, huh? It, I think definitely is part of it too. But I think also part of the disgust reaction is is that your heart rate and blood pressure lower, which right. would explain why you start to feel faint. Like I don't feel queasy or nauseated or like I'm going to retch. I feel like I need to sit down for a second, hmm. which is, I guess, is still part of the disgust reaction. It just isn't the 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 um, nausea version of it, it's the, but it's still revulsion, but a weird fainty version. So in the med school sitcom that we star in, when mm -hmm. they pull the sheet back, <laughs> you start saying, I don't feel too good, guys. And we're like, yeah, you're so funny. And then all I, of a sudden you hit the deck. <laughs> uh -huh. I think the way I would play it is even more straightforward where I, my eyes just go up in the back of my head and I fall backward <laughs> in yeah. response to the sheet being pulled. It's a good move. I can't wait for that movie to come out. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else? I don't think so. I'd be surprised if you did. We've gone on for a good six, seven minutes beyond when we should have stopped. <laughs> I think I like that game uh, aspect of that one. That was fun. Oh, your score, by the way, uh, indicates that you do experience disgust from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a serial killer. No, no. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you guys heard or not, but Jerry also gave her answers as well. That's right. Uh, if you want to know more about disgust, you can just go look at some weird stuff on the internet. It's out there for you. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. 
I'm going to call this uh, one of the many dyslexia uh, emails we got. Those are really rolling in mm-hmm. from people who uh, have overcome dyslexia and adults living with dyslexia. Yep. Um, so this one is from uh, from a fellow Atlantan uh, named Audrey Short. And she says this. Hey, guys, I have dyslexia, and I was so happy to hear you talking about my learning disability. I was diagnosed when I was about 10 uh, and went to the Schenck School in Atlanta, which uh, is specifically for children with dyslexia. Oh, cool. In fact, she sent in a following a follow-up email just to clarify that. Um, we learned how to read and write using a technique called Orton-Gillingham. Uh, when I left after the fourth grade, I could actually read. And more importantly, I loved to read and devoured every book I could get my hands on. Uh, while I graduated top of my class, I had to work twice as hard as my classmates to keep up with the required readings and homework. Uh, my peers seemed to think that my extra time I received for exams was the reason I did so well not the countless hours and late nights I spent um, learning the material. While mm-hmm. this bullying did affect me, did not discourage me from pursuing my education at college. Uh, I attended Miami University in Ohio, uh, graduating this May with a 3.99 GPA wow. in biochemistry and physics. Wow. Uh, I plan to at- attend a PhD program at Harvard or UC Berkeley. Uh, I'm not saying this to brag, but to tell other children with dyslexia to keep trying. I know so many students are afraid to ask for extra time or accommodations because they don't want to be bullied or stand out. I'm proud of my dyslexia because uh, it has forced me to learn how to stand up for my student rights. I've made it to where I am today by utilizing the tools given to me like extra time. And I want to encourage all people with learning disabilities to seek help because you are intelligent and your unique perspective just might change your field entirely. Nice. That was Audrey? Audrey Short. Great Man, email. Audrey, that is great email. So that kind of replaces that whole, like, look, this famous person made it. You can just tell people, let me tell you about Audrey Short. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Way to go, Audrey. That's fantastic. Congratulations early on um, graduating with a 3.99. Man, that's impressive. Uh, and good luck in grad school, too. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Audrey did, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and uh, check out the social links there. You can also send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Hey everyone, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra, combining raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.